Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are going to recapitulate the theology of Irenaeus of Lyon. Get it? Get it? You don't get it. Oh, <laughs> recapitulation. Oh, oh, jeez. <laughs> All right. Wrong time of day for bad theological jokes. Dad, why don't you start us off by telling us who Irenaeus was, when he lived, and why he is important? Well, we learned from his writings that he was a Greek-speaking person born in Asia Minor, and uh, somehow he got to know Polycarp, uh, who we talked about, the martyrdom of Polycarp, around 140 in the second century. Um and from there, he tells us that he traveled to Rome, and he probably studied with Justin Martyr, because he's certainly quite familiar with Justin Martyr's writings. Next, we know that he was in the missionary district of Gaul, in the modern area in France that's called Lyon, and there uh, a terrible persecution befell the Christian community uh, to which he belonged. And as a consequence of that persecution, he fled to Rome and continued his studies there until he was called back by the Christian community in Lyon, elected to be its bishop. It's the chief pastor is really what is the meaning here. The early bishops were chief pastors of a region and uh, that's because the previous bishop had been killed in the persecution that had now ended. And there, as a pastor for the next 10 years, uh, having endured this persecution and having really inherited the tradition of the martyrs from uh, Polycarp through Justin Martyr to his own predecessor in Lyon, Irenaeus noticed that some of his folks in the community were beginning to be seduced by a new movement appearing within the Christian community and claiming the right to speak and be heard within the Christian community. And we can understand immediately, I think, why Irenaeus took offense with this. These new voices poured contempt on those who had suffered for the name of Jesus because they held the name of Jesus is something that can be left behind once one grasps that the hidden spiritual Christ stands behind this earthly, physical, fleshly mask named Jesus. Oh, it's like that um it, it's like in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about no one in the spirit ever says Jesus is accursed and what that's probably referring to is this proto-gnostic rejection of the fleshly Jesus in favor of the supposed spiritual Christ. Is that the same kind of thing at is work? Is it precisely right? The docetism in Christology, now docetism, remember, means comes from the Greek verb dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. And docetism teaches that the spiritual Christ only appeared to be 
the human being, the flesh and blood human being, Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, in fact, the spiritual Christ simply adopted and used the physical Jesus as a ventriloquist uses a puppet or a dummy. Uh, It's a mask behind which the spiritual Christ hides. And then, of course, what really matters is the insight into this distinction. This is called knowledge as opposed to faith. Faith is for the lesser, unsophisticated uh, Christians who believe in Jesus. uh, And this insight called knowledge or gnosis is the wisdom that the mature, the spiritually mature, uh, have received. Uh, And that has this profound ethical implication that bodily behavior is really a matter of indifference because the body uh, is what is nothing but a mask or a vehicle that you temporarily employ until you can liberate your spirit uh, from that. So you see that among the Corinthians too. Yes, I think it's very right to call the Corinthian heresies, especially in 1 Corinthians, proto-Gnosticism, as some uh, scholars have, these impulses are certainly spirit- uh, there in the spiritual culture of that time. So that's why you see why they could, they could be contemptuous of the martyrs. Those boobies, those dumb, dumb jerks, you know, got themselves <laughs> killed violently because they were stuck up on the name of Jesus referring to the human being of Nazareth rather than having the wisdom and the insight to see past that into the spiritual Christ which uh, who comes in order to liberate us from bondage to the flesh. Which allows you to have a religiously and politically uncostly aloofness towards everything. Like, oh, you want me to worship the emperor? Sure, no problem, because I know the real spiritual truth. So whatever I say with my lips or if I bend the knee, no big deal. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it can be it's interesting. Gnostic, Gnostic ethics could take one of two forms, an extreme asceticism, because the flesh is what makes you sick and contaminates you, particularly if you, if you, if you uh, get invested in it, and so how do you how do you deliver yourselves from the passions of the flesh? Extreme asceticism, that's one version of Gnostic ethics, or the other one is extreme libertinism. It doesn't matter what you do, you know, just use the vehicle whatever way you please for the time being. It's going to be discarded. It's a ladder that you use to climb up to the escape hatch and uh, travel to the spiritual world on the other side of the cosmos. So what really strikes me, Dad, and what you're describing here is that Irenaeus is someone who is very close to the martyrological tradition, but lives to tell about it. So like when we did Ignatius last year, we have his seven letters en route to Rome. And you see there, as you pointed out, we see a developing martyrological theology. But it's interesting that Irenaeus suffers persecution. So he, in his own life, person, body, knows the cost, but he lives in order to report on his relationships with Justin and Polycarp and who and Polycarp who may have known the Apostle John and 
and it has left a, a persecuted community and come back to a persecuted com- community. And so he can take that that ethos of people who have been martyred or who are suffering now and then use that in order to think through what the Christian witness is. So it's a it, it interesting in-between place that he hovers in. And what I also find already in what you've been describing is how deep and longstanding these issues are. So on the one hand, you describe the extreme Gnostic or the extreme ascetic ethics of the Gnostics, which of course will feed into the Manichaeism that Augustine later will admire, but ultimately reject for the same reasons of bodily affirmation as Irenaeus. But also we see there in, in uh, the, um, contention that's going to arise in Irenaeus's community between those who who suffer for the faith and those who compromise in order to get by the Donatist controversy, where Augustine's going to land in a different place. I mean, of course, the details of the case are different there, but it's interesting to see how early these the, the landscape is settling into the familiar shape it's going to take. That's why I think the study of patristics is so important, because the gospel message uh, as it went out into Greco-Roman civilization and beyond into Syrian civilization and Ethiopian situa- uh, civilization uh, and even further east into Persia, in all these cultural contacts, all the possible deviations from the gospel line were experienced in a kind of a classical form. And it's fascinating to know that the very first uh, struggle, life and death struggle with heresy was the struggle against Gnosticism, uh, which said the creator of this world and the creator of our spirits are two different gods, an evil god and a good god posed in perpetual combat with each other. And correlated with that, this Christological docetism, which divided Jesus up between a fleshly shell and a hidden spirit within that's the very first heresy. Uh, you know, why don't you just, we, we've defended here the whole concept of heresy, but I think it bears repeating because for not always bad reasons, people often have an allergic reaction to the word. It can be weaponized um, against um, the vulnerable um, or the thoughtful in ways that are unfair. But at its core meaning, as, as Irenaeus shapes it, the problem with heresy, I mean, uh, there's some passage in which he basically says heresy is homicidal. It will kill you because it is so false about the truth about God and about humanity and about salvation and goodness that actually the reason why you combat heresy is because if you don't, they will combat you and they will win. (laughs) So you have to get rid of them, um, hopefully not um, simply execute the people who hold to them. Uh, But that's not Irenaeus's issue at all yet. So just talk us through a little bit why we can uh, honor this early book called Against Heresies that Irenaeus wrote. Yeah, well, I think it's important to translate the actual Greek word that stands behind our English word heresy, and I translate it as deviations. So heresies are deviations that do not walk true or teach true to the gospel message, which is the foundation uh, of the church. Jesus Christ is the one foundation that has been laid, and no other foundation can be laid. And Already in the New Testament, you have this concern uh, for the truth of the gospel as opposed to deviations from it. Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, if anyone, myself included, preached some other gospel 
than the gospel that you uh, first heard and I first preached. Let them be anathema. First John chapter four verse one. Test the spirits to be to see whether they are of God. Not every spirit is of the spirit of God. There's got to be discernment. Uh, and Jesus in the little apocalypse, for example, Mark thirteen. Uh, many will come in my name saying, I am he. Do not believe them. Again, there will be many Christ, many messages of salvation, many messages of liberation, many proclaiming to be the Savior. Uh, in the 20th century, the notorious example of that was Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer sent from God to liberate the German people from their oppression. You've got to make distinctions between the authentic message, good news of Jesus Christ, and the deviations from it that corrupt that message. Yeah, I, I would propose even a further paraphrase. Let's call them dead ends, because you know deviation also can have a kind of um, a sexy, exciting, uh, avant-garde quality to it. But I think in in the the real more more physical sense, a heresy is a dead end. There's only so far you go, and when you get to the end of it, it's nowhere. You have not reached a, de a destination or made a successful or interesting journey. It just stops cold. And so the reason why you don't travel down heretical paths is because they just take you nowhere in the end. Yeah, I like that, Sarah. That's very good. A, a, a deviation uh, is a false route that leads you into a blind alley or a dead end. Well said. Rather, rather than leading you through the cross to the crown, which of course is the line that the gospel charts out for us, both in teaching and in life. L let's just point out two more things about this. It's extremely important to put all of this in the context context of the imperial persecution of the early Christians. To call Irenaeus something like a heresy hunter and a forerunner of the Inquisition and all that is just incredibly ethically obtuse. <laughs> these, people, these people were the persecuted. The early Christians were the persecuted. They were the victims of imperial persecution. And they counted the cost of naming the name of Jesus before the imperial magistrates, and they were willing to do that. That's the ethically costly way. And what was at stake of that, of course, is obvious on reflection. The living question is, who is the incarnate Son of God? Caesar sitting on his glorious throne? Or Jesus, that Jew who ended life, as far as the world knows, hung upon a Roman gibbet. Who is the Son of God? You Christians want to say that Jesus the crucified is the Son of God? Fine, we're going to crucify you too and see if you stick to that confession. See, that, that, that's what's ethically at stake here in this whole uh, question of the conflict with the Gnostics. And so for Irenaeus, positively, the Holy Spirit of Jesus and his father, steals the flesh of the martyrs. For the flesh, human flesh, is God's good creature. There's no dualism between the creator and the savior or redeemer. Flesh is the good creature of God, and therefore the flesh is the object of divine redemption. Paul says this in Romans 8, uh, we await the redemption of our bodies. And we have a foretaste of that redemption of our bodies in the Holy Spirit, 
who has been given to us. It's the body that's bathed in the waters of baptism, and it's the body that is thereby designated as the heir of uh, the resurrection. So it's not just that Irenaeus is against Gnostic dualism uh, for uh, many other reasons. It's primarily because it's the opposite of Christian salvation. Christian salvation designates the body as the object of divine redemption, pours out the Holy Spirit on the body, conforms the body to the cross and resurrection of Christ through baptism, and designates it as heir of the resurrection. That's the gospel message from which Irenaeus wants no deviations. That must have been profoundly bewildering to people at the time. So wait, Irenaeus, you're saying that my body, which is tired and hungry and sickening, and if I'm a man is constantly laboring, and if I'm a woman is constantly childbearing, that this is a holy and good thing, and that God is going to take it and make it even better than it already is. But between now and then, I might actually get crucified like this guy you said already did get crucified. This must have just been very, very (laughs) confusing. And yet at the same time, obviously, it had a compelling force by genuinely offering something practically unheard of and offering a strength to live into it that the world had just not seen. Right. And that's to live into it, to go through the cross, not around the cross, through the cross to the crown. The Gnostic Docetist theology of salvation was a theology of escape. Avoidance. Of avoidance of suffering, avoidance of engagement, avoidance of conflict and trial. There must have been something about Christianity that that just had the tang of truth about it. Like, this is a hard truth. It may not be the truth that I would have wanted, but somehow it, it rang on the ear as this is, this is, this is reality. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. There was a, a, a reality principle running all through. In fact, Irenaeus says that in many places, because human beings are real, And because salvation is real, and because Jesus is real, and because God is real, etc., 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 and then he draws the conclusion, therefore we must live this way, not escaping into flights of uh, fancy uh, in the whole Gnostic mythology that was uh, uh, seducing some of his parishioners. Man, you need a really present Holy Spirit to have the courage to face that much reality. <laughs> right, exactly. To to not have an escapist theology, and you know that would really put a, a critical question to a lot of contemporary American spirituality. How much of it is just <laughs> Gnostic escapism? Well, we don't even need religion for that. We have smartphones. So <laughs> anyway, before we get off on that cultural tactic, well, I'd, I'd like you to, to walk us through some of the major aspects of, of Irenaeus that are so so evocative and provocative. Um, but I just wanted to, to mention quick uh, my own um, brief travels through his work. Um, back when I was in doing my graduate program, I persuaded Ellen Sherry, who would go on to become my Dr. Mutter, a wonderful Ellen Sherry, to um, let me do a... Um, an independent study seminar on what I called the preconciliar theologians. Because as we mentioned in our, our last episode, of course, Bart is in the air everywhere at Princeton, which means that the Trinity is in the air everywhere. And I guess I was curious, you know, I could see the the proto-Trinitarian language and structure of the New Testaments. And, you know, I was, I'd say, basically committed to the um, 
the conciliar formulations of Nicaea and Constantinople, etc. But I was really curious, like, how did we get from from there to here? And how much of it is, you know, the uh, the accusation of, you know, Greek metaphysics or whatever, taking over and infecting the pure gospel kerygma? And just and how do we think about the the God talk of theologians before conciliar formulas kind of set the the broad parameters of orthodox, you know, the the grammar, like Lindbeck would say. Um, so I, you know, just read through all that, you know, is basically available. There's not tons of literature, but there's a significant body between the New Testament and Nicaea. And so, of course, in the process, I went through Irenaeus. And I found with Irenaeus, much as I think I commented when we talked about Ignatius last year, um, Trinitarianism does not just spring up in the early 300s out of nowhere. <laughs> it's so right. absolutely threaded through everything Irenaeus says and does and thinks. It, it it's he he. I mean, uh, w- without being historically anachronistic, he is a Trinitarian theologian in the full-blooded sense that you would see later in Nicaea. He cannot think about God apart from his Son and his Spirit, and the Son and the Spirit are also truly God, but they are not identical to the Father. I mean, you know, everything you could hope for in the distinctions made in Trinitarian theology is is already deeply and beautifully present. And not only that, the sort of theories of salvation or atonement are already prefigured. You see um, references to stealing the um, the dead from the devil or leading them out of their bondage in hell, which, you know, uh, Gregory of Nyssa picks up on. You have the later Athanasian-type formulas of God became human so that humans might become divine. And you even have talk about um, paying off the debt, and um, the reason that God became human is in order to do what humans needed to do but couldn't do for themselves, but God had to do it because only God could do it, just like you see in Anselm. It's like the whole history of dogmatics is already there in Nuce and Irenaeus. I was just floored. So um, it, the, this, the, the later developments are not um, deviations, shall we say, or dead ends leading away from the New Testament. But in fact, they're, they're so deep and so early on. Uh, I found that, as you can probably tell from my tone of voice, very encouraging to one who would wish to be a Trinitarian theologian. Uh-huh. Well, I'm happy to hear that. You never told me that story before, but I, I, I resonate with it. And what you're really saying in in my way of looking at things, Sarah, is that Irenaeus is the first dogmatic theologian. I want to use this word dogma. It has as much cultural cachet as heresy. Dogma, dogmatism, oh, yuck, icky. Yeah, you know that uh, that, uh, bumper sticker that says, my karma ran over your dogma? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. that, that captures the popular attitude. But tell us why we right. should love the word dogma and the study of dogmatics. Yeah, see, dogma, again, let's take it etymologically back to the meaning of the Greek word. Dogma means a teaching. And, you know, teaching doesn't have a bad reputation, does it? The act of teaching, we love good teachers. We love the content of what they teach if it is in, enables knowledge because knowledge empowers us to do things better in the world. So, you know, if you just think of dogma as teaching, there are teachings uh, to be found in the Bible about who and what God is and how we are related to God. That's dogma. That's, That's all it means. The teaching about who and what God is and how we human beings are related to God and all that goes with that. So is Irenaeus doing something in in his 
dogmatics, let's call them, that really hadn't been done up to this point? That's exactly where I was going with this. Up until the time of Irenaeus, there was a kind of a tacit awareness that there are these teachings in the um, early Christian tradition. But remember, Irenaeus is writing about 170, 180 in the second century. He can't walk down to the bookstore and buy a copy of the New Testament. <laughs> right. It ain't there yet, right? The, all the various books of the New Testament are in circulation, but they're not unified. They're not put together. They're not united with the scriptures of Israel, the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Old Testament. The canon doesn't exist yet. And so there are what what is there in the place of a canon of the Bible are the public transmission of the gospel tradition from the apostles. Uh, that's uh, what Irenaeus is interested in, the public transmission of the gospel from the apostles to the present day. That's what exists, but that's a very shaky system of authority because bishops can go wrong and uh, the Gnostics are popping up and saying the bishops have gone wrong. We, they have been suppressing the secret tradition handed on from Jesus, which now we are revealing to you in our new writings uh, that the Gospel of Thomas was an early example of this kind of thing. But there's Gospels of Judas and Gospels of Peter and all sorts of literature that the Gnostics are producing. So the the Old Testament canon is firmly established by this point. I'm assuming that, you know, even the New Testament writings referred to Scripture as a fixed thing. And, you know, famously in the year 8070, the rabbis at Jamnia say this is it and the right. rest isn't. So it's the New Testament canon that's still developing. But all the books that would become recognized as the New Testament are circulating more or less, right. and they're they're known. So I'm just curious, is there any reason to think that the, the Gnostic idea about a secret transmission of tradition has any analog in the Jewish tradition to the oral Torah versus the written Torah, and the oral Torah is finally what gets codified in Talmudic form? Or is that, do you think that's a totally different trajectory from, from private to public or secret to open? Yeah, I think actually there's a parallel development there because we do know that Gnosticism largely originated in disillusioned Jewish circles after the defeat uh, of the rebellion against Rome and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70. And it's a kind of, you can simplify this very much. We went rebelled against Rome, believing the zealots preaching that the Lord would descend from heaven and defend us against the Romans. The Lord didn't show up. The Lord is a deceiver. The Lord is an evil deity who has tricked us. That's the origins of the Gnostic theology and the subversion of the uh, Hebrew Bible by Gnostic literature is already going on in Jewish circles, and a parallel development is is uh, then uh, seeping uh, creeping into Christianity through the course of the second century. Um, and so, I think the rabbi's codification of the canon is actually probably a reaction against this creeping Gnosticism and within Jewish circles themselves. 
uh, when apocalyptic failed because of the failure of the Jewish revolt. So you would need then a Talmud to fix Jewish practice away from Gnostic temptations. And so that's a similar sort of thing Irenaeus is going through. How do we fix the content of gospel teaching so that the Gnostics don't make us lose the whole thing? Yeah, I think hermeneutically speaking, the parallel is the New Testament is to the Old Testament as the oral Torah, uh, the Mishnah, uh, on the way to becoming the Talmud, is to the Hebrew Bible, the right. uh, okay. scriptures of Israel. Right. Okay. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. So you asked me the question, how is Irenaeus innovating? What is new with Irenaeus? And this is simply that he uses his intellectual powers, his reason, in order to um, theologize the dogmas that the public church, the early Catholic church, has inherited from the apostles. What's really interesting here is how uh, Irenaeus innovates, and he innovates by theologizing the dogmas. Now, remember, the dogmas are in the air. They're there in the various pieces of literature inherited from the first century uh, that become the New Testament. But they're for Irenaeus. They're there in the, uh, the, the rituals that the early church has universally adopted, baptism and Eucharist, as well as this public tradition that I referred to. But they're not yet synthesized. They're not yet made coherent. And so what Irenaeus does is he looks for the coherence of the dogmas. And this is provoked in reaction against the Gnostic revisionism. Remember that already Marcion, in a generation earlier, had published the first Christian canon by chopping up the letters of Paul, uh, cutting out the birth narrative from Luke, uh, and uh, uh, also chopping up the book of Acts and uh, totally jettisoning the Old Testament. He was like the Thomas Jefferson of his day. <laughs> yeah, right, the cut and paste job, right? There was already this revisionism in the air from Irenaeus's perspective. And to understand the logic of this, Sarah, imagine uh, that I took Shakespeare's Macbeth, and started uh, cutting out uh, various passages, right? Uh, scattered around, cut them out, and then totally rearranged them, and then added some uh, embellishments to make my new arrangement flow into a story. Even though I've liberally quoted from Macbeth, would the result be Shakespeare's Macbeth? No, I don't think you could say it was. And actually, Macbeth is Shakespeare's shortest play, so there's suspicion that already happened to Macbeth. So it was a very good choice of play. <laughs> yeah, we can do redaction criticism on Macbeth, but the, you get my point. That yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if you, you can quote from a text, directly quote it, but if you take it out of context, literary context, and then uh, rearrange a number of quotes so that you can say, look at this was in the... Macbeth, this is in Macbeth, this is in Macbeth, but I'm telling you the real story of Macbeth. What you've actually done is create an entirely different story. And Irenaeus says this is something like what the Gnostics do with Scripture, both uh, the Scriptures of Israel and the various writings that become the New Testament. 
they totally destroy the plot that's there, and they impose a new plot arranging the individual teachings or dogmas and narratives or stories uh, uh, and so forth uh, to make sense of them in a totally different way according to this dualism in theology and docetism and Christology. From observing this and taking offense at this, Irenaeus realizes something new. The arrangement of the stories and teachings is what makes sense of them. We call this arrangement the plot line. Understanding the plot, one understands, moreover, the mind of the author, what kind of story the author is intending to convey. So this was the hermeneutical discovery uh, that Irenaeus makes that launches the work of dogmatic theology. It's so interesting, you know, as, as uh, again, listeners will be familiar with by now, this, this unifying of, of a forward-moving narrative plot structure with the metaphysical or ontological claims about what God is, is so satisfying. <laughs> and it seems so right and so true. But as you say, someone had to be the one to to pluck it out and make that connection between these these swirling, circulating ideas about what God is. And, you know, I think no matter what culture you're in, or whether you claim to be a believer or an atheist, you, you have these notions in the air of what God must be and must be like. And then you have these stories that people tell of their own lives, of their peoples, of the whole world, or whatever. And it's the the merger of the two, I think that's again where we get that um, tang of reality at work. That the reality of of things in themselves is not divorced from things as they act and unfold over time. And so for Irenaeus to be able to explicitly make that connection and say the plot is what directs us to the 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 whatness of God and makes us mm-hmm. understand how that whatness interacts with us is um it, it's very satisfying. You see it like for example he has this, you know, a very classic patristic string of, you know, the the eternal became mortal and the impassable became passable. And, you know, all these wonderful reversals, which are using metaphysical language to capture shortly and neatly what are the constant, fascinating, plot-satisfying reversals that Scripture narrates through its whole history. Absolutely. And we'll see two things about that, Sarah. We'll see that, in fact, as much as it seems Irenaeus is innovating, he's actually realizing the implications of something that was present from the beginning. And I'll get to that in a minute, right? Uh, But this sense of paradoxicalness, of paradoxical reversal, of course, is right there in, in what we today especially identify as the Christian message, the resurrection of the crucified, the incarnation of the Son of God, uh, the uh, way from the particular to the universal rather than the deductive way from the universal to the particular. All these reversals are there uh, in the Christian message uh, from the beginning, and we'll see how Irenaeus picks up on that shortly. But what I'm, I think the next step that we have to realize here is that Irenaeus is challenged theologically by Gnostic dualism. Remember, the Gnostics are teaching there are two uh, uh, 
equal deities, an evil deity uh, of the dark material world and a god of light, the good god of the spiritual world. And they are uh, uh, in perpetual conflict and tension with each other. And unfortunately, some poor sparks of divine light fell away and got trapped down here in matter. And now they're being rescued and returned to the world of light. That's the dualistic theology uh, of the Gnostics, of the Gnostics. So Irenaeus has the question, what really is the unity of God? And how do we secure the unity of God against this deep dualism? And this is what you are, the task that's imposed upon you the minute you join together the scriptures of Israel with the New Testament gospel. How is God the creator also God the redeemer? How is God the redeemer also God the creator? When you put the whole Bible together, you have the Genesis to Revelation uh, narrative. Now, what story does this tell? What's the plot of this big story? Who is the dramatis personae? And so I think what you're showing is that is that the the let's say naturalistic human religion the the naturalistic human religion is to deny a connection between the creator and the redeemer because the one who is responsible for getting us into this mess could not possibly be the same one who wants to get us out of this mess. Yeah, very good. Exactly. And how does, how then, what is the key? How, do, how does Irenaeus uh, put these two together? And his answer is an interpretation of the saving work of Jesus Christ uh, with that pun you used to introduce this episode. <laughs> recapitulation, recapitulation. How do you go from creation to new creation, from Old Testament to New Testament? What mediates this uh, development of the plot. What is at the center of this plot mediating this turn uh, of the ages? Answer, the saving work uh, in Christ of the recapitulation of human nature. You know a thing or two about that, don't you? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we should unpack the word. You know, we use it now as a as more of a rhetorical term. You know, we recapitulate the the content of a book, you know, which for we mean it more now like making something shorter, more precise, more efficient. But it's literal meaning. We have, a, a, I guess, in the, the recapitulation is the Latin form. Irenaeus must be using a, a Greek form. But it basically means to put the head back on something from which the head has been lopped off. So you right. could maybe think of, of uh, with Adam's sin, the whole body of humanity becomes like a headless chicken running around towards right. its imminent death. So what's interesting is like for Irenaeus, the question is, why did God save the way that he did by, well, I mean, as we will know with Christ, I mean, there there's presumably lots of ways you could fix the problem. And this is often a, a stumbling block for people thinking through atonement theology or the cross, like why this way? Why did it have to have to be this way? And I think what's, what's very um, intriguing and powerful about Irenaeus is that what he says is if, if the plot is reality, then what happened is the plot went off track. It hit a dead end. <laughs> and so what we need now is for someone, a new 
new protagonist to come on the scene, take the failed first protagonist by the hand and say, okay, we're going to go through the blot again, but we're going to do it right this time. And so right. his imagery is something like uh, headless Adam comes along. Jesus is has his head still on his shoulders, grabs Adam and everyone in Adam's wake and says, okay, let's go. And he goes back through the whole course, not of, you know, some Gnostic, you know, loss and return or platonic reverse, you know, that kind of thing. But actually, he goes through the whole entire human plot line of being conceived, being gestated, being born, growing up, going in through adulthood, doing things like working and traveling and eating and sleeping and talking and all these kind of things, all the way to the end of the human life, which is death. And Jesus does it again. He does it right. He plays out the plot correctly in a holy manner, in always in fidelity to his creator, Father, Lord. And so in so doing, basically, the story goes right this time. And the sheer force of God going through the human story correctly basically pulls us all along with it. But what's so, to me, what's so tremendous is that salvation is not other than the created human life. Salvation just is like a tidal wave blasting through the real human life and sweeping everybody along to get to the final destination after all, pulling us all back from our dead ends. Well, Sarah, you said this anticipates the Chalcedonian Christology, uh, and I think you're exactly right here. It it, it is God who must do it because humanity is incapacitated, as you said, the chickens with their heads cut off, running around about to die. <laughs> and so it God must enter the list and do this. But it must be done in and as a human being. Uh, the human being must be the one uh, who is recreated or, as you were saying, recapitulated. So God must do it, but it must be done in and as a human nature. And that's how uh, the life of the fallen humanity of Adam is relived in Christ. And I think quite specifically here, um, Irenaeus has a very interesting idea that I think is very important. It's not simply that because this human being, Jesus, is somehow attached to the divine word that the recapitulation occurs. Rather, uh, what the incarnate word does is have the humanity anointed with the Holy Spirit. The humanity is conceived by the Holy Spirit. The humanity is baptized in the Holy Spirit in the River Jordan. The life that this human being lives is lived under the lordship of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit steals uh, the human being, Jesus, to endure his suffering and death faithfully, and the Holy Spirit raises the dead and crucified Jesus uh, and exalts him to lordship. All of this happens in the human nature under the gift and lordship of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Irenaeus is suggesting. True human nature from the beginning, was meant to be led by the Holy Spirit. And so when Adam sinned, what he lost, the headship that he lost, uh, was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was supposed to be leading Adam uh, through his maturation process and finally translating him to eternal life with God. 
and this is what has been restored to human nature in the humanity of Jesus, the lordship of the spirit. Yeah, that's amazing because then, I mean, the spirit is not airlifting you out of creation so you can escape from it. It The Holy Spirit is keeping you right down on earth. <laughs> Spirituality touches the ground and takes you through, actually, as you say, the, we say, the whole passage of human life. It's, uh, it's, it's not, um, yeah, it's so unnostic in every possible way. Yeah, and I would just like to make a, I want to talk a little bit about Lutheran and Protestant reception of Irenaeus at the end. But let me mention right here that Martin Luther, in the Genesis commentary, expresses exactly the same theological anthropology. Luther teaches that Adam was made to be led by the Holy Spirit. Being led by the Holy Spirit was Adam's original righteousness, so that uh, that by sin, Adam lost not just the original righteousness, but the source of that righteousness, which was the headship of the Holy Spirit. And this, he was making this point against the weak doctrine of sin he saw in his Roman papist opponents, who said that original sin merely harmed the human nature. And Luther said, oh, no, 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 no. Losing the headship of the Holy Spirit for the living of life, is a mortal wound. It's a lethal wound. It's a wound that kills. That's why the wages of sin are death, the loss of the Holy Spirit and radical sinfulness. So could we say, as we've been talking, it's occurred to me that, you know, I mentioned, and you have all the the reversals that the patristic theologians like so much in talking about the doctrine of God and the doctrine of salvation. Could we posit that one of the things Luther contributes dogmatically to Christian theology is adding another reversal that didn't, it got some attention in Augustine, but maybe not the degree it needed to, which is that the reversal that it is precisely the enemy of God who is is the object of God's mercy, and it is precisely the sinner that is justified. And that is the, you know, kind of the, the final missing piece of the series of reversals we see in, in um, incarnation and atonement that then reaches its saving goal and saving precisely the sinner, not the person who has, by his or her own efforts, put themselves in a position to be a friend of God and be a good person and therefore merits the, the reward of salvation or something like that. Of course, you're right about that. And this is a kind of a stupid opposition to a synergy, the cooperation of the redeemed creature of God uh, with the renewed lordship of the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 6, for example. The Augsburg Confession immediately talks about the new obedience following its discussion of justification by faith. And Luther, at the end of the treatise on the bondage of the wills, says something to the effect that God has redeemed us for no other reason than we become cooperators with God. And Irenaeus, of course, with his doctrine of recapitulation, is showing us how in the humanity of Jesus, that synergy, that cooperation of the, whole, of the human creature uh, with God uh, is realized on our behalf uh, pioneering the way for us, if we can quote here the letter to the Hebrews. 
Great. Well, we'll come back in just a second to the later reception history of Irenaeus. But two more things, at least, I think we should cover in Irenaeus before we get there, which is, one, his uh, teaching on the communication of idioms, and then secondly, on um, how he can speak of what we would later call both the economic and the imminent trinity. So why don't you take us through the end of Irenaeus with those two things? All right. But I think there's one more concept that that needs to mediate that discussion, and that is the notion of the economy of God. This is actually derived from Ephesians chapter 1, where uh, the author uses the Greek word oikonomia that comes into English as economy. Uh, Oikos is Greek for house. Nomos is the rule or the management of a household. So uh, the economy in, in Irenaeus's language means something like the divine arrangement or the divine plan for the creation. And the uh, thought here was that God's economy, God's plan for the creation, was hidden from the ages, but now it has been revealed in Christ, a thought that Paul expresses at the end of Romans and that Ephesians picks up in the first chapter. Uh, And so there's a revelation of what God has been intending from the beginning. And the revelation for Irenaeus is this stunning thought, that Jesus Christ is not God's second thought. Jesus Christ is not God's reaction. Oh, gee, Adam sinned. Now what am I going to do? <laughs> right. No, 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 no. From the beginning, God created the world with the intention of redeeming it, through the recapitulation that occurs in Christ in order that its destiny in eternal life be fulfilled, right? So that's the economy of God. And Irenaeus argues that we understand, uh, with this key, with this insight into the economy of God, we can interpret all the passages of the Bible by constantly asking, why did God arrange things this way? because this is how you know the mind of Scripture's author or the intention or purpose of the Scripture's author. And I say myself that that yields the fundamental proposal of Irenaeus's theology, a proposal which I myself have adopted in my systematic theology, namely this, the one God of the one world is determined to redeem and fulfill his creation through the missions of his word and his spirit. And I would like to make this observation about that proposal, that that's the economy of God that I just articulated. This is a theology of God's self-revelation on the principle that only God is known by God. God is only known by God. And thus, we, for us creatures, there is no way from us to God to the knowledge of God, because God is only known by God. That's a way of talking about the transcendence, the majesty, the beyondness of God. God is only known by God. This is all very familiar from our last episode's discussion about Bart's theology. Of course, and of course, and Bart, of course, is re- reclaiming this inheritance from Irenaeus. The point of that is, is that if we know God at all, it's only by the free grace, the free gift of God's self-revelation, giving us the knowledge of God. Now, Irenaeus therefore thinks that that has actually been delivered 
to the church publicly from the very beginning. How? In baptism and Eucharist. The two ceremonies that initiate the Christian life, baptism, and that uh, perpetuate the Christian life, Eucharist. And he says, all of our theology accords with the Eucharist, and the Eucharist accords with our theology. Again, it's that principle of theological realism. The flesh is real, Jesus is real. In the Eucharist, the bread and the wine become the vehicles of the real presence of the crucified and risen uh, Lord Jesus. Baptism is very interesting here, because the early ceremony of baptism was uh, conducted by that threefold confession of the Father as the creator of the world, of the Son as its Redeemer, and of the Holy Spirit as its fulfiller. So that threefold confession with that threefold understanding of the various works assigned to the Trinitarian Three in the context of their unity that God creates in order to redeem, that God redeems in order to fulfill. This is one story of one God redeeming and fulfilling one world. That is there in the Trinitarian confession of the baptized from the very beginning. Of course, it's coupled with the renunciation of Satan and all his wicked works and ways. So that's actually, Sarah, the, the key with which Irenaeus uh, judges what literature is orthodox and what literature is deviant. Does it accord with the baptismal rule of faith, the Trinitarian confession? As you observed, when you read Irenaeus, you were astounded at how Trinitarianism uh, pops out all over the place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's and it's interesting that it's that the Christians have been uh, encoding and engraving the Trinitarian plot structure and name and reality of God onto their bodies with baptism from the very beginning. Irenaeus, even the New Testament, already assumes this baptism happening in this way. That's right. That's right. And so the, the rule of faith from. I I think this is really interesting. The New Testament is there before the book named after it. Right, (laughs) right. And that's how Irenaeus can actually uh, begin the process of canonizing or codifying the New Testament. Uh, uh, Does it speak realistically about the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross? Does it affirm against the docetists that he was truly human? Does it affirm that it was God himself in the person of the Son who lived this human life uh, and suffered and died this human life in order to raise and glorify this human life? So this must be why for Irenaeus we see, again, what would later be called the economic and the imminent trinity are the same thing and they have to be the same thing because the God who acts out in the plot in relationship to his creatures has to be the same God who is who, is who he is in himself as God. Yes, if God is truthful in this self-revelation and not lying, there has to, the, 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 eternal trinity and the economic trinity or the trinity of uh, human history and salvation must be one and the same God, not two different gods. Yes, of course that's true. But let's just, again, specify very clearly. There is no knowledge of an eternal or imminent trinity except through 
our epistemic access is exclusively the economic trinity. There's no independent knowledge of the triune God. Uh, the knowledge of the triune God is only uh, through this access that is created in the human uh, history narrated in the gospel of the incarnate son, Jesus, right? So it's, and that's a very important stipulation because a lot of times the fear is, is that uh, people go off in speculative uh, uh, journeys, uh, uh, get caught up in all sorts of fascinating triadic logics and, 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 and try to create a metaphysics out of um, uh, a so-called imminent trinity. No, the, the, the doctrinal function of the imminent trinity is simply this that God did not need to create a world or to redeem a world or to fulfill a world in order to be who God is as the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. No, God eternally is this fulfilled divine life of love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And therefore, if God, in fact, has, as he in fact has, created this world with the intention of redeeming and fulfilling it, it is not because God is lonely. It is <laughs> not because God is needy. It is not because God is greedy. It's because of the surplus, the excess of divine, divine abundant love that God undertakes the costly path of creating, redeeming, and fulfilling a world. So the only function of the doctrine of the imminent trinity is to guarantee, to secure in our understanding, the freedom of God's grace. Uh, of, of course, a very important theme for the, a theologian like uh, Karl Barth. Now, that's how Irenaeus was the first to really stumble upon this insight when he said God was not soul, God was not alone and therefore lonely or needy for company, but rather God from the beginning was the life of the Father with his word and his spirit, so that their life had its own eternal dynamism, uh, movement, uh, charity, and so forth, as we've just described. Well, I wish we could just leave it there because that is so beautiful and moving. But we did promise a, a quick summation of Irenaeus's reception history. So let's try to knock that out in a couple minutes because we're at our hour already. But I, I was surprised that you, you, you said that Irenaeus's writing had been lost at least to the West until Erasmus brought it back to them in the 16th century. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Huh. Irenaeus wrote in Greek, but the Greek uh, manuscript has been lost. And I think there were translations into Syriac uh, that were discovered later on. Uh, but there, Rufinus, the one who translated Origen into Latin, also translated Irenaeus into Latin. And that uh, manuscript survived uh, somehow through the ages, but it was also obscured and lost and no one really knew about it. So even the Greek church didn't know about Irenaeus? I'm not sure. I don't think so. I only... Huh. From what the references of later fathers to him, uh, we, I'll have, we'll have to double check on that. But I'm I'm certain that the Western Church did not know about Irenaeus until 1526, when Erasmus published uh, an edition, the Latin edition of Against the Heresies. This was a deliberate act 
in the pamphlet war between Luther and Erasmus. Uh, Erasmus published Irenaeus as a counterattack against Luther's treatise on the bondage of the will against uh, Erasmus. And this polemical origin of the appearance of Erasmus, uh, of Irenaeus in, in Western consciousness has prejudiced Lutherans especially against Irenaeus for centuries. They saw in against the heresies synergism, human cooperation with God and justification, the primacy of the church in Rome, episcopacy, the harmonization of the Gospels at the expense of the theological diversity of the early church, dogmatism and its dark shadow heresy hunting. All these evils of Roman Catholicism they saw prefigured in Irenaeus, though I think after our discussion today you can see what a terrible retrojection of contemporary concerns on Irenaeus, uh, this whole polemical uh, spin, both from Erasmus's side and from the Lutheran side, is. Yeah, that's... Did Luther read Erasmus's Irenaeus edition? Do we have any idea? I think I think there is some references to Irenaeus later in, in the Luther corpus. Uh, I'd have to track that down. I'm not so sure about that. I don't want to say here. But it's cer- certainly the case that this colored the whole thing and uh, colored the whole thing in a really awful way because it totally overlooks, like I said earlier, the massive fact of uh, imperial persecution on early Christianity. Uh, and it, it obscures the true perspective of Irenaeus in his battle against Gnostic dualism and Docetism in Christology. It just obscures that. It blocks it out. Uh, there was a scholar named Walter Bauer who published a book called Orthodoxy and Heresy in Early Christianity in which all these Protestant prejudices uh, are played out in a, a drastic form, and Irenaeus a- appears as this monster uh, uh, anticipating the Inquisition. Oh, gosh. Well, to our listeners, I think we can safely say we'll include in the show notes a link to read the English translation for free online. Consider it to be something that will be very fulfilling and pleasant and insightful and wonderful and not not this monster as has been portrayed. And it is very accessible to an ordinary reader. I mean, it's not not like Bart when I asked you last time where people should start with Bart and you could hardly come up with an answer. Irenaeus, you can dive right in, no problem. Yeah, I think so. And I hope our readers will be inspired to read. I would just say um, the first book of Against the Heresies is nothing. It was the initial strategy of Irenaeus. All I have to do is publicize these absurd myths being propagated by the Gnostics, and people will be be uh, be uh, disgusted and disillusioned. That'll be the end of the story. Well, he published all these myths, and instead people were titillated. Oh, wow, this is really this is really interesting. And so Irenaeus doesn't really get down to the hermeneutical and dogmatic work that we've talked about in this podcast until he gets into books two, three, and four. Okay, so maybe start with two. All right, well... <laughs> 
Uh, uh, that was great. And in our next episode, we will be moving from the sublime to the ridiculous. We will be deconstructing the deconstructionists with a hard look at critical social theory. Hot diggity dog. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show. Music